Traders Point, how are we doing today? Good, good, good to be with you all. Uh, I want to take time to welcome everybody from all of our campuses, everybody tuning in online, and it's so good to be with you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, that's where we are going to start today. If you missed out last week, we started a series called Adventures in Dating and Marriage. And man, what a word to use to describe both of those things, right? What better word could describe the process of two perfect, unflawed people entering into and sustaining a relationship. Uh, man, adventure is something that I would definitely use to describe my, my own marriage. Uh, my wife and I, total, both dating and marriage, we've been together for 17 years now, and I know I don't look that young. Um, yeah. I don't look that young. Uh, and usually when I throw that number out, it, it elicits a response, something like, wow. Um, and that wow means two different things to two different camps of people. For some people, it's like, wow, that's impressive. Uh, for the older crowd, they're like, that's nothing. I have underwear older than you and, and your marriage. To which I would respond, wow. <laughs> and why? <laughs> no, but uh, we got some time in. We've been through some things. Uh, there was recently a trend on Instagram that was encouraging people to post a 21-year-old picture of yourself. And I didn't participate then, but I'll participate now in front of thousands of people. And uh, this will live on the internet forever, so it counts, right? Um, so this is us, you know, in our early 20s. Babies, uh, man, yeah, no kids. Navigating the hardships of life, which were mainly school exams and no money, uh, which meant lots and lots of cheap dates. Uh, and years later, here we are, all the kids, uh, yeah, navigating, helping them. We're now helping them with school exams and still lots of cheap dates. Um, no, but it's been such an adventure. It has been an adventure of joy and excitement and celebration, but it's also been an adventure with twists and turns and um, you know, car, heavy cargo, things that we've been carrying with us that have made the, the adventure difficult at times. And the adventure has included some, some detours and some road bumps and even some, some road blocks. But can I just say that it has been the adventure of a lifetime and with the best travel buddy that anybody could ever ask for. And so I'm so grateful. And uh, in this series, we've just been acknowledging that relationships are difficult and they are challenging and they're incredibly complicated. So when it comes to navigating them, where, where do we turn? What makes them work? And at the end of the day, what makes them worth fighting for? And we feel that God's word has a lot to say about that. And uh, if you missed out last week, our anchor verse comes from Philippians chapter two, verse five. Maybe you wanna write this verse down where the apostle Paul says, hey, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And last week, Pastor Aaron said that any relationship, for better or for worse, is the result of the mindset that two people bring into that relationship. And so if we want to have a better relationship, then it requires a better mindset. And if you want to have a better mindset, then model it after the mindset of Jesus. And church, I just want to take time to interrogate that today. If that is true, if we are to have the mindset of Jesus in our relationships, then what is the mindset that he had towards relationships and specifically towards marriage. And so all throughout scripture, we kind of see this word that is used to describe 
marriage, and that word is sacred, sacred. The word sacred just means something that is set apart, that is distinct for a specific purpose to God or, or, or to worship God. And so in saying that marriage is sacred, we're gonna say that this, this thing is, is set apart for a specific purpose as an act of, of worship. And I wanna break down three elements of, of, of sacred marriage that we'll kind of walk through. And those three elements are the significance of marriage, the symbol of marriage, and the sacrifice of marriage. The significance of marriage. We'll take a look at the origin of marriage and what purpose it has. The symbol of marriage, what does it symbolize? What view should we have of marriage as we're living it out? And then the sacrifice of marriage. How do we take this mindset and fully live it out? How do we apply it to our lives? And before we jump into that, I just kind of want to acknowledge that um, we, I know that at every one of our campuses or tuning in online, that not everybody is married. There are a number of people who are single and divorced and, and widowed. My, my prayer is that you, you wouldn't tune out, that you would know that God's word is living and active and that he has a word for you and that there's a way that you could take something that is said today and either apply it to your life or maybe in the future as you are discipling somebody else. I also know that there are a number of people in our church that are uh, walking through a significantly painful experience as it relates to relationships right now, maybe a recent divorce or a separation, and this may brush up against some wounds that haven't fully healed yet. I want you to know that I've already begun praying for you praying that God would heal what's been broken, but then you would also know that God is with you as you walk through the pain and that he's the master of redemption and the master of restoration, so to lean in to him. And so as we look at that, the first thing that we want to explore is the significance of marriage, and that's where Genesis chapter two comes into play. We're gonna start in verse 18, and this is what it says. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Highlight that, underline it, because that's, that's important. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all of the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and the man chose a name for each one. So here, God is, is continuing to create. Up to this point, he's created so many things. He's created the land and the sea, the heavens and the earth, the sun and the moon. And at the apex of his creation, is humanity. And actually, in the original language, the word is Adam, which means human. That's where Adam gets his name. So, so God creates Adam and he gives them this sense of, of purpose. He gives them a responsibility to be a farmer, to cultivate what God has created. But that's not enough. God says, no, he needs something else. He needs a helper. He needs somebody and something, a, a companion. So God's like, I've got it. Animals. Wouldn't have been my first choice, but I'm not God. He gives him animals and he gives him responsibility to, to name the animals. But we see here that even in that, it didn't meet the relational significance that God wanted for Adam. So we read on in verse 20, it says, he, talking about Adam, gave names to all of the livestock, all the birds of the sky and all the wild animals. But look at this. But still... There was no helper just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. And the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. You know, there's something that has always intrigued me about this and 
Yes, God created, he created all these things and they were all good and he placed Adam in the garden, this perfect place. And, and Adam and God were in relationship with one another and, and God gave Adam responsibility and he gave him a purpose. And it seems like everything was going great, but it wasn't fully sufficient. Even though Adam had God, there was still this void. If I could put it this way, it was as if God said to Adam, Adam, I alone am not enough for you. You need people. And church, that's, that's true for all of us. We can't do life alone. We need community. We were never meant to live as islands to ourselves. And regarding marriage, this means that a significant part of marriage, what we see here, is this word right here that I just want to throw out there. It's companionship. Companionship, which is, which is friendship. Adam was alone. And God said, I want you to have someone that you can build a friendship with. Something vital that, to marriage. And, and Pastor Aaron last week, he kind of touched on this a little bit and he encouraged us as married couples to, to focus on nurturing our friendships. Nurturing our friendships. Why? Well, because friendship is essential to a healthy relationship. It is, it's the essence of a healthy relationship. Um, there's a, a book called The Meaning of, uh, of Marriage. The Meaning of Marriage by the late Tim Keller. If there was any book that I could recommend, whether you're single or dating or married or what have you, it would be this book. And he speaks on this very thing in, in, in his book. He says this, he says, when God brought the first man his spouse, he brought him not just a lover, but the friend that his heart had been seeking. In individualistic Western societies, romance and great sex matter far more than anything else. The Bible, however, without ignoring the importance of romance, puts great emphasis on marriage as companionship. You know, Bree and I, will, we will often be out at, a, uh, at like a grocery store or a restaurant or a hybrid of the two. We call it Costco. <laughs> and we go to the food court, like all good people should do when they're at, at Costco. And we will often see um, an older couple there that are sitting down and, and sharing a meal together. And they'll be in their maybe their 70s or their 80s. And when I mean sharing a meal, it's like one bowl of ice cream and he's taking a scoop and she's, she's taking a scoop. And we'll sit there and we'll look at them and sometimes we'll say to ourselves, Man, I hope that's us one day. How cute is that? And then sometimes we'll engage in conversation. Usually it's one of our kids that get their attention that kind of sparks a conversation and, and we'll begin to talk with them and one thing will lead to another. And at some point, you know, I'll ask the question, hey, what's the secret? It looks like you have longevity in your marriage. What, what is the secret to making it last? And usually the man will give some kind of like sarcastic response like, well, whatever she says goes. <laughs> He's not fully wrong. Uh, but then the woman will say, friendship. Friendship is, is important. It's, it's important for you to have this, this element of friendship, this companionship before you have anything else. And in the Song of Solomon, uh, chapter five, the woman echoes this concept that we see in Genesis about her husband and she says, this is my beloved, this is my friend. And so I just wanna throw out a question to all the married people in the rooms of all of our campuses. Married, married people, how is your friendship? How, how is your companionship? If, if part of the significance of marriage is to horizontally express the vertical relationship that we have with he, our heavenly father, how are we doing in that? And there's lots of, of, of aspects to friendship that we could go on for, uh, for days about, but two that I just wanna quickly highlight 
Um, one is joy and laughter. You know, laughter tells you a lot about a relationship. Being able to laugh with somebody. That's one of the things that I love about my wife. We will find things to laugh about. We'll reminisce on silly things that we used to do. Talk about silly things that we do now. We'll crack jokes on one another. We'll crack jokes on other people. We'll sing and we'll dance to old 90s R&B music and just have fun, you know? And we try to cultivate this element of laughter and joy. And let me tell you, you have to fight for that. It doesn't come naturally. The other thing that I would say is, is transparency. Transparency is key, vulnerability, being, being vulnerable with one another and forging this deep connection and, and getting to the layers beneath the layers and, and creating this aspect of your relationship where you can be your full self in front of the other person. Where you can say, this is who I am, this is who I'm walking, this is what I'm walking through, this is what I, this is what I need. And what you do in those moments are important. As somebody is sharing something with you, as they're sharing hurt or pain or they're navigating something very significant as, as our partner, what we do in that moment is important. Guys, we don't always have to go into fix-it mode, okay? Sometimes they just want us to, to be present, right? Not to, not to problem solve. I've had to learn this myself. There'll be times where my wife is saying something and a phrase that I've tried to adopt over time with her but also with my kids is, hey, tell me more. Tell me more about that. Tell me how, how, that made you, how that made you feel. Because my natural disposition is to say, okay, this is what you can do to no longer feel that way or to overcome the problem. But no, I'm trying to practice presence with and not solve a, a problem. So how are we doing in being vulnerable, but then also fostering a space where vulnerability can, can take place emotionally and mentally? That is one of the keys of friendship. And so we see that Adam and Eve were friends before that they were anything else. And so in marriage, before we are mom and dad, we are, we're husband and wife. And before we're husband and wife, we're friends. And we have to fight for it, we have to cultivate it. We need to fight for this companionship because it's something significant that God created. But friendship in and of itself isn't the entire purpose of marriage. God has chosen to use friendship within marriage as a significant picture of the, of the overall relationship that he has with us. And, the image of marriage points to something so much bigger, and that's what takes us to the next point, which is the symbol of marriage. And in verse 23, we see Adam's response to God bringing this woman to him. This is what Adam says. He says, at last, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And then look at this, the two are united into one. So Adam sees this person that God had created while he was asleep, this person who is, is like him but is not like him at the very same time, this person who is fully equal but who is also different, and he responds with, with two phrases. He says, at last. And then he also says, whoa, man. Some of you will get that later. <laughs> I'm a dad of three kids. I got jokes for days uh, that are corny and cheesy. Uh, but no, we see that this union happens and two are united into one. And it signifies two things. Pastor Aaron talked about last week how one of the significant aspects of marriage is commitment. And he, he distinctly contrasted a, a covenant versus a contract. But this also signifies unity. 
And that's where I want us to focus today, the joining of lives, and not just physically, but the joining of lives emotionally and mentally and spiritually and financially. And church, so often, (laughs) so often, we want the benefits of physical union while trying to keep the other aspects separate. We will say, hey, you can bring your body into this marriage, but you, you keep your emotions over there. We say, hey, hey, it's great that you love Jesus and follow Jesus, but I'm not on that path, so don't bring that stuff into this house. Finances, we'll, we'll keep that separate too. We try to do all of these things separately except for the physical portion. And God says, no, you are two people becoming one in all areas of your life, not just physically. Because this symbolizes a, a union a joining together, a uniting. And so, so what does it symbolize? When God says two are united into one, what does he mean? Well, I think we could use this illustration of a concept that we believe in in Christianity called the Trinity. And within the Trinity, we have God the Father, we have God the Son, and we have God the Holy Spirit. All are God, God is one. These aren't three different gods. These, these are all one God, but uh, they are distinct in personhood, meaning they have different roles and and, and functions. So God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit did not die for us on the cross. Jesus did. And when we believe in what Jesus did for us, then the Holy Spirit comes and and dwells us and, and lives within us and helps us to live out the faith that we have, and he seals our salvation. So what we see in the Trinity is this beautiful expression of diversity, but also unity at the same time. Marriage is also unity and diversity. And so we could use this similar image where God is at the top. He is the apex of our marriage. He doesn't change. He's staying up there. But then we have this diversity in husband and in wife. And we are diverse, but we're also united in one another. And we're symbolizing this image of God in the way that we live, in the way that we move. That's why marriage can never be minimized just to a piece of paper. No, you are actually imaging the very person of God in your marriage. It symbolizes the union with one another, but also with God. I want to acknowledge, though, that there may be people, there are people in our church, and as you see an image like that, you you may be asking yourself or saying to yourself, but Kyle, I don't necessarily fall perfectly into that triangle. Maybe you are in um, this calling in your life where you said, I feel actually called to singleness for life. And can I just say that is a noble gift. We see people throughout the Bible who were unmarried, who made a significant impact in the lives of other people. You are not half a person just because you are not married. You can make a whole impact. So embrace that gift. There also may be a number of people who say, but Kyle, what about me? I am same sex attracted. What does that mean for me? Well, before I say anything else, can I just say that God loves you, that we love you, and you are welcome here. I've had the chance to sit down with people who are same-sex attracted, and oftentimes in those settings, I ask more questions than I have answers, and I, I just listen. I listen to the stories of people, and I sometimes and oftentimes are filled with hurt and with pain and with mistrust. I've also heard stories, though, that are full of redemption where somebody will 
let me know, hey, I'm still figuring this thing out and it's messy and it's hard, but I've chosen to follow Jesus and in following Jesus, I've, I've surrendered my sexuality to him. I've come to realize that the gospel isn't that I get married one day, but the gospel is that I get Jesus and I've chosen to follow Jesus above everything else. And I look that person dead in the eyes and I say, man, I admire you. There's a lot that I can learn from you. And as a church, we, we have our convictions. Pastor Aaron has spoken on LGBTQ in the past. Those messages are online if you ever want to go and look at them. But more than anything, church, what I want us to embrace is the fact that we don't merely stand on issues. We walk with people. We come around people so that they don't feel lonely and hurt and, and alone. We let them know that, hey, you are part of a community of people and we're all in process, we're all sinful and we're all in the process of being made into the image of God, so let's do so together. And so regardless of your relationship status, I want you to know that you are in a church that wants to come around you and we have pastors at every campus who would love to talk with you if you need to. You can go onto our website for a number of resources or even if you just wanna reach out and say, hey, I want somebody to come around me and talk with me. I also want to add that there's a significant part of the symbolism that involves this word called sanctification. It's a fancy word that just means to be um, in process of coming to look more and more like Jesus as we go. And marriage not only unifies us, but it sanctifies us, which means as we live out this union that God created us to be in, we are helping one another to look like Jesus. So to speak, we are on each side of these triangles and I am pushing the other person to look more and more like Jesus up the side of the triangle, not to be God because we can never be God, but to embrace his character, to look more like him. And as that happens, man, there's this natural, uh, this natural joining together. We become closer as we draw closer to God. And Tim Keller in that same book, he, he speaks on this and I love what he says. He says, within this Christian vision of marriage, Here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I wanna be a part of that. I wanna partner with you and with God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. Marriage helps sanctify us, church, and it engages us in this process of becoming more like Jesus, moment by moment, bit by bit, day by day. And it sounds beautiful because it is, but can I just name reality for a second? Y'all, this ain't pretty, <laughs> like at all. It's actually complex and it's messy and it's hard and it forces us to see some of the ugly and sinful parts of our character that marriage brings out, things that none of y'all wrestle with, you know, anger and jealousy and pride and impatience. It involves giving your partner permission to lovingly call those things out in you and to hold you accountable to surrendering them to Jesus. Church, it involves hard conversations and disagreements and forgiveness and tears and apologies and empathy and forgiveness, and patience, and pain, and grace. And did I mention forgiveness? It is extremely challenging, and there will be times where you ask yourself, what kind of adventure is this? But can I just lovingly say, there may be people right here, right now, and you're in the midst of a very difficult time in your marriage, 
and you're asking yourself that question, can I just let you know that it's worth it? I'm not talking about if you're being subjected to, to any kind of abuse. I'm not saying that you just endure that. What I am saying, if it is a relatively healthy marriage and you're just, you're navigating some road bumps right now, that you trust that it's worth it, that it has a purpose, that it's helping to sanctify you, that, that God is with you as you endure, and that there's this greater call to just trust the process. So if marriage is significant, and if marriage symbolizes this union that we have with one another, but ultimately this union that we have with God, then the question becomes practically, how do we live that out? In order to do that, I wanna take a look at Ephesians chapter five, and we're gonna start in verse 21. We're gonna unpack that a little bit. But before we do, there's two things that are critical that I just want to acknowledge and I wanna call out. One, I don't wanna acknowledge that throughout the history of the church, not necessarily this church, so to speak, but the, the universal church, there are verses within this passage that have been weaponized and used in ways that God never intended. I also want to, to just let you know that there might be things that you read as we go through this passage that you might disagree with, you might be confused on, or you might even have questions about, it might make you bristle at some things. I wanna encourage all of us just to suspend judgment and to read through this with an open mind in an open heart. So starting in verse 21, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's important. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. He made up, no, he gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Dang, there it is again. This is a great mystery but it is an illustration of the way that, look, Christ and the church are one. So again, I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Church context is, is very important. And we have to remember that this is a letter. It's a letter written to real people, a real church, with people who had real relationships. And there's a dominant culture within this, this city of Ephesus, and they included a lot of things. There was this dominant religion at the time in the city of Ephesus uh, about the, the, goddess of, uh, the goddess Artemis, who she was a goddess of fertility. And so a lot of these women were subscribing to this theory and worshiping this goddess that said childbirth is everything. So what do you think they were submitting to? That ideology. As long as I have a family, as long as I have a healthy child, as long as I am able to bear children, then that is what is the utmost important thing. I am submitting to that. At the very same time, you have all these men who are being influenced by this dominant Roman culture 
that said, you are a man, you are strong, and you can do what you want, you can marry who you want and still sleep with who you want. There's nothing that is above you. And then you have these two groups of people who come to know Jesus, and they're bringing all of these things into the church. And Paul is writing to them, reminding them that, no, you have a, a different way that you are to follow now. There, this is what you used to do. This is what you used to say. This is the way that you used to act. But now you are filled with the spirit. And this is what you replace it with. So he talks to, to what that means for greed and drunkenness and envy and, and, and gossip and all of these different things. And then he gets to this verse and says, this is what it means within the context of relationships. And that's what we just read. And I don't know if you caught it, but when it came to relationships, he started by saying, Submit to one another out of a reverence for Christ. Meaning there's to be this mutual submission as believers, this love and this respect that we have for one another. And then he takes it a step further and he says, for wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. I wanna take a brief moment just to provide some clarity on what this means and, and what it does not mean. Notice that Paul said, wives to husbands, not women to men. The second thing is submission does not mean inferiority. It doesn't mean second class. It doesn't mean silence. It doesn't mean that you are called just to, to be a homemaker, that you can't work outside of the home. It, it certainly doesn't mean that you don't have a voice, and it doesn't mean that you don't, don't have an opinion. In fact, in, in Jesus' time, Jesus actually elevated the status of, of women who were considered second class citizens. Jesus uh, had women disciples. Jesus traveled with women and these women would sit at his feet to learn from him, to study him right alongside men. That was countercultural. Jesus would have these private conversations with women, something that was culturally frowned upon at the time as well. The first people that Jesus revealed himself to after the resurrection was women. And then he told them, go and tell others that I have risen. What does that mean? That means that women preached the first Easter sermon. Hallelujah. So what does that mean? That means as a wife, as a woman, you, you speak into. You have the ability to speak up. You have the ability to, to speak on. That you are not silenced, that you're not second class, but you get to do so with this mutual respect. You get to come alongside to influence as a couple and you work together through mutual sacrifice and mutual submission. Here's the third thing that I would say that it says, submit, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Meaning a wife that is following Jesus should never do anything for or with her husband that is outside of the will of God. It means that you are not following your husband into sin. It means that you submit to him as to the Lord, but your husband isn't your God. That's why abuse and narcissism and manipulation are never okay. Ladies, that's also why it is vitally important that you have your own relationship with Jesus and that you know his voice and you know his word. So what is submission? Well, I like to break it down this way. If you look at the word submission, and sub and mission, sub means to, to get under, to get beneath, and then we have the, the mission, the mission that God has given the Christian household, the mission that God has given the church. And so for a wife, she is saying, I'm going to put myself under that mission. That mission is more important than my individual desires. She's saying, I'm, I'm not putting myself below my husband. I'm putting myself under the mission that God has given my husband for our marriage. 
And I've talked with a number of women about this over the years, many who have said previously as they wrestled through this, this text, it, it rubbed them the wrong way and they couldn't get behind it and, and it was very difficult for them and I heard them. But then they turned a corner and they said, through, through the process of praying and, and trying to be humble, man, the Spirit of God began to do something in me and began to change the paradigm at which I looked at this, this verse through and it began to soften me and I began to realize the truth that it's not me rejecting this, it's actually me saying, and no, if my husband is following Jesus, if he has fully surrendered his life to, to, to Christ and, and the fruit of the Spirit is, I see that in his life, I have absolutely no problem submitting myself to him because he's following Jesus and he's following him doing so, leading my family closer to Jesus. And that's ultimately what Paul is, is getting out here. And then he turns a corner and he starts talking to the guys. Fellas, I don't know if you noticed, but he has significantly more words to say to us than he did to the women. And I think that's intentional. It's because there's this great responsibility that comes with spiritual leadership. And Paul says, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? That word love that Paul uses here is, is the, in the original language, it's the word agape. And the Greeks had a bunch of different types of words for love. They had like friendly love and they had erotic love and brotherly love. But agape is this, this unconditional, sacrificial kind of love. It's a word that denotes less about feelings and more about um, a decision. And it's the same word that is used in John 3.16 where it says, for God so loved the world. Well, what did that love look like? A decision. So he gave his only begotten son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So there's a connection between our love and our choosing. We're choosing to sacrificially love. We're choosing to lay down our life. We're choosing to deny ourselves for the sake of loving our wives. This is the same thing that Jesus did for the church. So practically, what does that mean? I just kind of want to highlight three things for, for us men. The first thing, it means we've been called to die. And you guys are like, is he speaking figuratively or literally? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a both and. We've been called to die to our flesh, to anything that does not look like Jesus, so that we can better serve our wives. And we've been called to put our lives on the line to physically die for them if the case requires it. We've been called to deny ourselves in order to, here's the two words, provide and protect, and provide is far more than monetary means, okay? We've been called to, to provide um, this, this space of emotional safety to our family, not financial. I've met stay-at-home dads who are leading their family by providing this emotional and spiritual safety to their family, to their wives. We've been called to, to protect, and that is more than physical. Yes, you are called to physically protect your family, but you're also called to protect the peace within your home. Why? Because there is an enemy who is doing everything he can, who's not playing fair, to attack your family and to disrupt that peace and disrupt the unity that God wants you to have. So what does that mean? As that happens, I'm the one that's standing on the front line spiritually, on guard and aware of the, the ways that he's trying to enter into our home. And I'm protecting the peace and the unity within my home. So husbands, the question that I wanna ask is your home a place of safety and peace? 
Are you dying to yourself so that your wife feels safe with you? Here's the second thing that it means. It means prioritizing her well-being. Her well-being, not the kids, not time with the guys, not the football game. Happy Super Bowl Sunday, everybody. <laughs> her. It doesn't mean that you can't have fun. It doesn't mean that we can't go out with the guys. It means that everything has its place. And if she's not well, ain't nothing well, okay? It doesn't mean that you, you say yes to everything that she wants. No, it means learning her. It means knowing her, studying her, and making her feel valued by the way that you, you are present to her needs. And then the third thing is caring for her as you care for your own body. This is what Paul gets to here. Fellas, she, she was created in the very image of God. She is somebody that God created and Jesus died for. So you treat her and you speak to her as such meaning you never call her out of her name, you never threaten her or abuse her, whether that's physically, verbally, or emotionally. Listen, leadership is not a license to leverage authority. It is a call to lay down your life, to serve, to be humble, to die to yourself. And I know there are a number of us here who are like, but, but I never saw that modeled. I never had a marriage to look to to say, that, that's imperfect, but that's a healthy marriage. Kyle, where do I go for that? I would encourage you to start in the Gospels, to start and see how Jesus treated people, how he treated the people that he interacted with, how he engaged with them, and then you take that and you ask the Holy Spirit to help you live that out. Secondly, I would encourage you to get around community, other people that are in process just like you that can encourage you but challenge you at the very same time. Remember, we were not called to live life alone. So those two things help us to see how we are to model both submission and also leadership, healthy leadership. And every day is an opportunity to be invited into this kind of love. You know, the, um, one of the privileges that I have as, as a pastor is I get to do premarital counseling with couples. And I love it because I learn just as much as I pour out. And it's a way to help keep my own self accountable because I never wanna be preaching one thing and I'm going home and living a life that's totally different. And recently I was able to begin this process of premarital counseling with a couple. And in the, uh, in the very first session, we usually kind of go through um, the process of expectations. Let's just get our expectations out onto the table. And so I'll usually ask them, hey, make a list of two to three things individually that you uh, are expecting of your partner over the course of the next few weeks. So this couple does that, she makes her list, writes two to three things, he makes his list, and then I have them share them. So she goes first and she says, what I need from you over the next few weeks is X, Y, and Z. And then it's his turn. And he shares his list. What I need from you over the next few weeks is X, Y, and Z. This is what it's gonna look like for us to live this out over the next few weeks. And her response, man, it intrigued me and it almost floored me. She said, it sounds to me like as much of an expectation as this is, this is also an invitation. And I said, it sounds to me like you don't need premarital counseling. <laughs> you got this whole thing figured out. But I love that. This is an invitation. Husbands, can I just, can I gently, pastorally, but challengingly, if that's a word, ask you, 
What are you inviting your wives into? Is it an adventure with Jesus? Is it an adventure where you're saying, hey, I'm not perfect, I have my baggage, I have trauma, I have things that I'm still working out, but I have fully surrendered my life to Jesus and I'm imperfectly following him. I want you to join me on this journey. I want us to walk step and step together, edifying one another, building one another up, helping to sanctify one another. We're gonna drop the ball, we're gonna argue, we're gonna have disagreements, but man, the grace of God is what's going to sustain us and we're gonna pick each other up and we're gonna encourage each other to look more and more like him. Do you know what that requires though, guys? Taking initiative. There's a difference between taking control and taking initiative. Those are two very different things. Taking initiative is what Jesus did. And a lot of times, spiritual leadership, I would say, looks like asking the question, who says let's more often in the relationship? Here's what I mean by that. Who says, honey, let's pray together. Honey, let's study the Bible together. Honey, Honey, let's be to church on time today. Let's serve together. Let's let's get our finances in order. That's not taking control. That's saying, God, where are you leading this family? And I wanna gently, but also um, reverently follow you. And I wanna invite my my wife into this process. And I wanna listen to her as I do it. I wanna welcome feedback. I wanna talk through things. And I want her to poke holes in that. What is she hearing from the Lord? But then let's take this adventure together. Church, Jesus initiated and Jesus invited. Jesus perfectly lived out all three elements that we talked about. He is the best companion, the best friend that anybody could ever ask for. Jesus is the symbol of both unity and diversity. He is like us, he's united with us, fully human, experienced everything that we did, yet he is not like us. He is diverse in the fact that he is fully God. He is that symbol. Jesus submitted himself to the will of his heavenly father. He's in the garden the night before his crucifixion and saying, God, if this is not possible, if there's any other way for this to happen, let this cup pass for me. But then he says, not my will, your will be done. Submission to his heavenly father. And then he sacrificed. Jesus laid down his life, denied himself, his wants, for the sake of unity with us, being reconciled to us so that we could spend eternity with him. He displayed all of those things beautifully and now our marriages, our lives get to display that to a watching and broken and dying world who is seeing imperfect people following a perfect God and seeing, man, there is grace, there is redemption, there is mercy as the gospel is lived out and that's what our marriages get to tell. We get to tell that story. And now we just, every week in this series, we just wanna create space for the Holy Spirit to move, to speak. If you need prayer, this space is gonna be available for that as well. But maybe there's something that was said or you heard that you just need to reflect on. You you need to receive prayer over. This is that time for that. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray that all of our campuses, man, we're gonna open up for a time of just response. And so everybody at all of our campuses, go ahead and bow your heads. I'd love to to pray with us, Father. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for who you are. 
We're grateful for that you did not create us to live alone. You've created us to be called into relationships, friendships. Father, would you forgive us for the times that we have minimized what marriage really is? We have relegated it to just two people living together or having a family and failing to see the bigger picture that we are actually symbolizing you to other people. Father, would you forgive us for the times where we have not sacrificially loved the other person, where we've allowed our selfishness to get the best of us, and we've prioritized our own well-being over the person that you've called us to live life with. But God, in all of our repentance, we are thankful that you are a God of grace and mercy. You are a God of forgiveness, that that forgiveness spans as deep as the depths of the ocean, that we could not measure it. God, lastly, I know that there are people here who are walking through pain and hurt, so would you do what only you could do? Restore, renew, and revive, and heal what has been broken. And may we all, as the church, be like a city on a hill, where we are not perfect, but there are people looking at us, and we are constantly pointing the light to Jesus over and over and over again, the only one that is worth following in all of our relationships. We ask all of this in your perfect name, Jesus. And the church said... Amen.